what it is. Back in chapter 5, verse 11, the writer had said this. That he wants to pick up this topic of Melchizedek. Concerning him, right? Concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. It's hard to explain. Because, he says, you've become dull of hearing. And these listeners who first heard this, who first read this, according to verse 12, had come to the place where they needed milk and not solid food. They were not accustomed, as verse 13 says, to the word of righteousness. These matters of Melchizedek would be difficult for them. And so he spends out some time here in chapter 5 at the end and through chapter 6 really to prepare um, the hearts of the listeners for hearing about Melchizedek speaking about how you need to grow and you need to mature and you need to make sure that you're not one of those who fall away and you need to trust in God's promises. But I do find it interesting that he didn't merely say, this topic of Melchizedek is too tough, I'm not going not to explain it. We'll just pass over that and talk about it another time. He doesn't say that. Even with the difficulty of the material and even with the immaturity of the listeners, he went right ahead and proceeded with Melchizedek. Because you can see that right there in chapter 7, verse 1. It says, for this Melchizedek. He's going to start on that and talk about what Melchizedek is and who he is and describe what his significance is for our lives even today. And I would just say that these words are not easy to understand. In fact, of all of the, the passages in Hebrews where you put, okay, with the level of difficulty, you know, where this rates, this is one that rates right up there at the top. And he tells us so. It is hard to explain so before we dig into it, I, I do want to, um, to illustrate this a little bit, kind of I think what's, what's his heart. At Rock Valley Bible Church, our youth group's pretty simple. It's mothers meeting with daughters, fathers meeting with sons. The church want to come alongside these discipling relationships. Real simple. It's not so hard. In fact, I heard someone say recently that the primary cause of teenage rebellion is lack of relationship between parents and children. And so as they rebel, it's not so much that they're rebelling against parents as much as they're rebelling against lack of relationship, just looking for something else. And we want to just do everything we can to uh, promote healthy relationships in the family. Well, the men and the boys this past week, we have started reading um, this book by Joshua Harris called Dug Down Deep. I've heard some good reviews about it. My son liked it. I know you two boys are over there and you said you like it. Yeah, any testimonies about it? They read the first chapter this week. David, you were Saturday. Josh, you were last week sometime. Right? Good? Yes? No? All right, whatever. But uh, <laughs> SR loved this book, and it's really easy. We just uh, read it aloud together, and it's not, a, it's not a big deal. But Joshua Harris, in this book, describes his journey from a big, flashy, exciting, charismatic church that was pretty shallow to uh, a church that, that saw theology as a beautiful thing in which love for God was cultivated based upon truth. And really, his own experience the same, same lines, right? His Christianity followed the church, and it was just all flashy and excitement, but little depth. And then he said as he discovered some of the depths of Christianity, the doctrine of knowing God deeply and accurately outstirred a love for God in a greater way than ever before. It comes as a result of that is really his excitement and enthusiasm which had been grounded in the right things. Now that he threw those things away, he just got them and embraced them. And this really is a, a biography of his life coming from superficiality to, 
to Christianity that matters about uh, doctrine. And the things that I, I appreciate about Joshua Harris is that he's not promoting a cold-hearted intellectualism. He's not just promoting us to become eggheads in theology because cold, cold intellectualism is just as bad and, may I say, even worse than empty passion. And that really catches the heart of this book what we want to promote in our boys, what we want to promote in men, what we want to promote as a church as well. I've got a little video clip. We don't normally share video clips, but this was like too cool to pass up where Joshua Harris quotes from his, uh, his book on page 10. 11, I thought about reading it, but I'll just, I'll just let this video take care of it because it's just straight out of the book. So go ahead, Adriana, you can play that. <clears throat> Studying God doesn't have to be like that. You can study Him the way you study a sunset that leaves you speechless. You can study Him the way a man studies the wife he passionately loves. Does anyone fault Him for noting for every like and dislike? Is it clinical for Him to desire to know the thoughts and longings of her heart or to want to hear her speak? Knowledge doesn't have to be dry and lifeless. And when you think about it, exactly what is our alternative? Ignorance? Falsehood? We're either building our lives on the reality of what God is truly like and what He's about, or we're basing our lives on our own imagination and misconception. We're all theologians. The question is whether what we know about God is true. Was that cool? <laughs> That's kind of fun. Um, that was just straight from, from his book. Uh, I want to read two other quotes here from this, though, but I, I hope that you catch what he says. You know, just the whole comparison about studying God, yeah, it can be an intellectual thing, but it, it can be something more devotional, like, men, you study your wives. That's a good thing to do. And we need to study God because we want to know Him and know Him more deeply. Joshua Harris continues and says, I know from my experience it's possible to be a Christian but live on the surface. The surface can be empty tradition. It can be emotionalism. It can even be doctrine without application. And I think I've done it all. I've spent my share of time on the sandy surface of superficial Christianity. He says this, The past ten years of my life have been the story of uncovering the relevance and the joy and the practical power that comes from Christian doctrine. Doctrine isn't dry and boring. It isn't just for arguing. It's for knowing God and living life to the fullest. 
And these words really capture the heart of what we want in our children, what we want in us as a church. Not theology for theology's sake, but theology for doxology, right? Learning about God so we may be enamored by His beauty. Knowing God deeply so we might serve Him joyfully. And sometimes it means working hard to understand what it does. Sometimes it means tackling the, different, the difficult issues, but the, the fruit of that is tremendous. I would argue the strongest marriages are those marriages where the husband knows the wife the greatest and the wife knows the husband the best. Those are the strongest marriages when you, when you go deep. And similarly, Christianity, when we go deep, um, that's when our, our love for God will develop itself the best. L- let me give you another illustration to, to kind of whet your appetite here in, in uh, uh, Hebrews chapter 7. It's going to be hard. A couple months ago, my son and I were playing pool downstairs on our what I call my, our green idol downstairs in our, our basement. <clears throat> and uh, he starts talking like sometimes he does about the balls and how they ricochet off each other and how they bounce and how they rebound and rebound. And they morphed into a question about m- motion in general. And so he asked me about momentum. How is it that if you set up five balls here and then crash one with one ball over here, just one ball goes. But if you crash one with two balls, then two ball goes. And, and kind of these questions like this. Said, Dad, why is that? So my answer, having been a physics major in college, I tried to do what I could to answer his his question there. Um, Best thing I could. But it got to the point, even we talked more about acceleration, friction, momentum, and those kind of things. It got to the point where I said, you know what, SR? I said, I'd love to explain to you a little bit more, but in order to do so, you need to have a good grasp of mathematics. At which point, SR's face went. Because he's not the biggest fan of mathematics. I mean, he's an art guy. And bless him for that. He's a lot different than I am. But that's, that's okay. God's made us all unique. But he said this. He said, I wish they didn't have to confuse the fun things like physics with mathematics. <laughs> Can't we just do physics without math? And, and I, I said, SR, math is the door that opens up the world of physics to you. When you understand math... Um, You can understand all these things. Without math, you can't understand it, but on the surface level. But with math, you can not only understand laws of motion, you can understand gravity, you can understand forces and pendulums and torques and, yes, SR, even relativity. You can understand that when you have math. Math is important. And I say this, in the same way, doctrine is important for us to learn. There's many difficult things in the Bible that are important for us and helpful for us. And I say this, just as math is a tool to open up physics, so theology is a tool to open up God. Isn't it theology, the study of God? As we know Him, we can love Him better. And that's why, exactly why, the writer went back to Melchizedek, because it's crucial for us to understand Jesus. Are there things about Melchizedek that's different? Absolutely, yes. You, you, when I read this passage, I think you'll be like, what is that talking about? And that's okay. But are they important? Yes. Why? Because, here's why, Melchizedek leads us to a greater view of Jesus. And with a greater view of Jesus, we'll have more passion then to press on. With a greater view of Jesus, we'll have a greater desire to press on our faith. Think about the premise of Hebrews, right? What's the theme of Hebrews, everyone? Jesus is better, so press on. And so his whole argument is this. Okay, I'm going to show you how great Jesus is and because of how great Jesus is, let's press on to that. So suppose that he put Jesus like right here. How would our pressing on be? 
It'd be okay. What if he made Jesus look like he was here? What would our pressing on be like? A little bit more. And what if, what if Jesus, he made him higher and higher and higher? And the higher up that he gets, and, and the more glorious we see Jesus, I do believe that our heart and our passion to pursue him and to press on will be greater and greater and greater. So if you just look at Melchizedek and say, too tough, I'm going to move on. Well, you've just, you've not seen Jesus as high as he is, and I think it will have implications on how well you will press on. That make sense? So my question is, who is Melchizedek? That is the title of my message this morning. I know your bulletins are wrong. That's okay. I came up with that title, I think, this morning. But here's my title. Who is Melchizedek? Because that's what this text is talking about. Let me read the text for you. We're only going to go through verse 10. And as I read it, you'll probably think, okay, I don't understand that fully. That's okay. Bear with me. Let's press on. Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And those, indeed, are the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater." In this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And, so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. It's clear, I trust, in some ways. Um, I met with someone this week, said, this person said, I've never heard a sermon on Melchizedek before. Wasn't really aware so much of Melchizedek. So I hope today, my, really my aim is to, to open this passage so it's clear to you, so that you understand it, and ultimately then you'll see how great Jesus is as a result of this text. Now, before we dig into this, you need to understand a little bit of the difference between studying modern history and studying ancient history. When you study modern history, the amount of material you have is overwhelming. The sources are abundance, abundant documents and abundant newspaper reports, Abundance of pictures, some case video footage, some case eyewitnesses, eyewitness accounts. You can talk to people, you can interview people, artifacts, objects. So the challenge of studying modern history is the challenge of taking all this information and then synthesizing it into what's right. On the flip side, when you study ancient history, the case is reversed. With ancient history, there's usually, if any, just a few historical documents. Maybe one. Maybe just a few. There are no pictures, no video, no eyewitnesses. Maybe you had another document, someone's kind of giving an eyewitness testimony, but sometimes those are rare and they're not there. Um, there may be a few artifacts, maybe not. So the challenge of studying ancient history is taking so little data that you have and then reflecting back accurately upon history. Well, today we come to Hebrews 7 and our difficulty lies in ancient history particularly the history of this man named Melchizedek. Now, he is mentioned eight times in the book of Hebrews. Twice in the passage I read for you, 
three times leading up to this, and then three times in our passage next week, from 11 to 17. That's all we know about Him in the New Testament. Eight times, all appearing right here in the book of Hebrews. Then the Old Testament, His name occurs twice. Only two times in the Old Testament. And so, we can do some great ancient history here, because we can like read all of the ancient data that we have about Melchizedek. And that's what we're going to do this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles back to Genesis 14. This is the first instance of um, anything we know about Melchizedek. And for the sake of time, I'm just going to pick us up here in verse, <clears throat> verse 8. There's a bunch of kings mentioned before then. In verse 8, we have this. And the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, came out. If you count the number of kings there, how many kings do we have? Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, and king of Bela. Five kings. They arrayed for battle against them in the valley of Siddim, against, okay, let's count them, Kedorlaomer of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim, and Amraphel king of Shinar, and Ariok king of Elisar. Four kings against five. So there's going to be this big battle. These kings of these cities together. Now, the valley of Siddim was full of tar pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell into them. But those who survived fled to the hill country. And then they took, that is, the four kings were victorious, because the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were fleeing, they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food supply and departed. And they also, this is significant, took Lot, Abram's nephew, and his possessions and departed for, departed for he was living in Sodom. Perhaps you remember in Genesis chapter 13 when they separated. Abraham says, which side do you want? Do you want to go on this side where the land of Palestine is? Do you want to go on this side of Sodom? And Lot chose this way. There's this war. Lot is captured. So, Abraham finds out about it, verse 13. A fugitive came and told Abram, the Hebrew, now he was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and the brother of Aner, and these were the allies with Abram. And when Abram heard that his relative, Lot, his nephew, had been taken captive, he let out his trained men, born in his house, 318, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. It's interesting here, we often think about Abraham as this old guy with his beard and kind of old and frail, but here he is, he's... He's fighting war. It takes 318 of his men and goes commando style to get Lot and to rescue him. And, verse 15, so is how he did it. He says, he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. He also brought back all the goods, and also brought back his relative Lot with his possession, and also the women and the people. So you catch the picture. Abraham has gone to get Lot. He not only gets Lot, he brings back all the spoil that these four kings who had been victorious won. And then verse 17, After his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, and the kings were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And here it is. Okay, This is the first reference, the first of two references in the Old Testament of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, that will be significant later, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God Most High. He blessed him and said, this is Melchizedek blessing Abraham. We don't know 
Well, he did lift his hand up, put his hand on his shoulder, whatever, but prayed to God on behalf of Abram. He said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all. Okay? That's how to read that. There's Melchizedek, the first, first reference, Genesis 14. Later, if you want to, you can read before and after. That's, that's the key thing. Um, he came out to meet Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and he blessed him. Abraham, in turn, gave him a tenth of the spoil. Then he returned the rest to Sodom, the king of Sodom, what it says later. All right? That was 2000 A.D. And it would be a thousand more years before we hear of anything more of Melchizedek. The time of David, Psalm 110. So you can turn over there. This is a psalm that David wrote. David lived around 1000 B.C. Abraham was 2000 B.C. This is one of the... I think this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, by the way. Um, This verse, verse 4, is quoted... Oh boy, I'm guessing five times in Hebrews... I'm not exactly sure. Um, most, of, most of the times Melchizedek is mentioned in Hebrews is because he's quoting from Psalm 110. All right, Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong zepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. All right, here it comes. He's talking about Messiah. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change His mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is, the second <laughs> reference. And it continues on. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of His wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside, therefore he will lift up his head. It's a, it's a psalm of conquering, of kingly power, when the Messiah comes and establishes his rule and reign, and in the midst of it, as it says there in verse 4, you are priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Alright, we have done our ancient history. What's good about ancient history is it doesn't take a lot of time. You've got everything. But what takes some time is to really think. And, and you'll see this uh, writer in in Hebrews, really thinks a lot about what took place with Melchizedek. And I think that he discovered some things in the Scripture and was burning to share it with his people. And so let's turn back to Hebrews chapter 7. And upon the first reading, it may have been confusing, hopefully with the background that we have in the Old Testament of Melchizedek, we can understand it. And I just say there are treasures to be found here. There's a reason why people dig deep into the earth. It's because that's where the treasures are. That's where the copper is. That's where the gold is. That's where the diamonds are. As we dig deep into our passage, there are treasures to be found. So my first point this morning is some facts. Who's Melchizedek? Let's just get some facts about Melchizedek. Fourteen of them come in these first three verses. Just bing, 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 bing. And we're going to go through them rapid fire. Just picking out each one. Probably count them. Kids, you're going to have to write fast on your children's notes. First of all, he is king of Salem. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. If you recall, back in Genesis 14, all the kings were listed. And they were all kings of cities, such as Sodom and Gomorrah and Admah and Zeboim. 
Uh, they weren't kings of nations, they were kings of cities. And Melchizedek was just one of them, king of Salem. Now, Salem is probably a reference to Jerusalem, the land of Canaan. The next description we see of Melchizedek is he is priest of God, most, of the Most High God. If you think about this for a little bit, this is really where Melchizedek is so special and different. It's because he's a bit strange. Think a bit strange. Melchizedek, think about it, is not a Jewish man. He's not a Jew. In fact, I'm not sure if you caught it, but it's talked about Abram the Hebrew in Genesis chapter 16. The only Jew alive was Abram, his wife Sarai. And yet, here is Melchizedek. He is a worshiper of God outside the Jews, outside of Abram, Abraham. And more than that, not just a worshiper, he was a priest of the Most High God. And God, think about this, God was doing something outside of the people of Israel. Significant. We don't normally think about that, but, but that's the case. Melchizedek was outside the people of Israel, priest of the Most High God. God was doing something with him, at the same time he's choosing Israel for himself. Third, we see how Melchizedek met Abraham. There he goes. He met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. That's Genesis 14. Abraham's returning, having slaughtered these kings, and Melchizedek came out to meet Abraham, bringing him the bread and the wine. And this helps us to know that when the writer is talking about Melchizedek, he's talking about the Genesis 14 Melchizedek that we see in here. About. Fourthly, we see that Melchizedek blessed Abraham. You can see there, he returned. He met him as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Particularly, I just repeat again from Genesis 14, he said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Okay, fifth characteristic comes in verse 2. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. That is, Abraham gave a tenth part of all the spoils of this war to Melchizedek. He counted up everything that he had received, portioned off a tenth, and gave it to Melchizedek. You might say in this way, Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek. It's really an act of worship. It's an act of Abraham acknowledging the priestly role of Melchizedek and giving worship to God by giving a tenth to God's man. Sixth characteristic comes from his name. You look there, it says, he is, first of all, by the translation of his name, he is king of righteousness. This is what Melchizedek means. Uh, Melk comes from the Hebrew word melek. Melek means king. So Melki actually really technically means my king, but it means king. And then Tzedek in Hebrew is righteousness. So Melchizedek, Melchizedek means king of righteousness. That's his name, just kind of pulling what we know about him from his name. And then, if we figure out, he is king of Salem also. And the writer here then translates that, that as well. Salem comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means peace. So he is also the king of peace. So here's a righteous king and here is a king of peace. More about those later. In verse 3, we see seven more characteristics of Melchizedek. And I want to look at the first five together because they all... They all are intertwined. It says this, Without father, without mother, start writing kids, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days, without end of life. 
And you know what? We saw those things in Genesis 14. No mention of his father. No mention of his mother. No mention of his genealogy. Nothing about his birth. Nothing about his death. And, and, and the reason we know that's significant is because when you go to the Old Testament, I mean, you know about beginnings and endings of almost everybody. In fact, I challenge you to give me an Old Testament hero. And with a very few exceptions, I'll be able to tell you who his father was, perhaps who his mother was, close to when he was born, probably when he died. I can tell you what tribe he's from, what genealogy he's from, because the Bible is a historical document very interested in those things. But we don't know any of this detail about Melchizedek. Melchizedek merely comes on the scene and leaves just as quickly. And I think that's the point, that Melchizedek comes from nowhere. In other words, he isn't a priest based upon his family ties. And that's the important thing here. God is a priesthood which isn't Levitical. We'll get that to that next week when we get to verse 11. I'm excited about that because that lifts up the priesthood of Christ. Now, I don't believe these things mean that Melchizedek literally had no father or mother. Now, some may believe that. That's okay. Some say, hey, maybe he's more an angelic being, right, without any father or mother. I think the point that the writer is making here is he's just saying that he's coming from nowhere. We can't trace him. His priesthood is different. And I think this is the case because he's identified in Genesis 14 as the king of Salem. And you heard about all those other kings that were identified exactly the same way. The king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Geboya, and the king of all these other places. They, they were kings of cities, and I think, Sol, I think Melchizedek also was just a king of a city in the same exact way. I think the point is we know nothing of his genealogy. We don't trace it to the tribe of Levi, which is where all the Old Testament priests came from. Therefore, Jesus is different. Anyway, we see 13th characteristic. Let's proceed on. He was made like the Son of God. And this really comes off of the others. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but he is made like the Son of God. Kind of more eternal like the Son of God is. That's what we're talking about here. Now, let me ask you a question. Who came first, Jesus or Melchizedek? Jesus came first, without question, because Melchizedek was made like Jesus. Jesus wasn't made like Melchizedek. And I remember a few months ago, I shared just about the high priest, and it's not that, that God instituted this whole Old Testament law and then said, hmm, oh, Jesus would fit perfectly into that. No, it was Jesus first, and then He said, how can I make a law that would point people to Jesus. And so the sacrificial system and the, the priests and coming to God and the Holy of Holies, that was all set up so that people would understand Jesus. And so likewise, when Melchizedek comes on the scene, he is made like Jesus because Melchizedek is there to foreshadow Jesus. Melchizedek was what theologians call a type of the Messiah. Really, it means he was a picture of the Messiah. He, he foreshadows Jesus. He prophesies of Jesus. And there, there are many things in the Old Testament that act like this, that are types, that are foreshadowing. There, there's the, the type in the Old Testament, and then it's actually called the anti-type, or the corresponding thing in the New Testament, which is almost always Jesus. Sacrifices were types of Christ. They pointed to and anticipated the sacrifice of Jesus. None of them were exactly perfect. I mean, they were animals rather than a man, but they taught some things to point us to Jesus. The law was a type of Christ. It says in Matthew 11, verse 13, that the law prophesied 
And it prophesied not in the sense that it made predictions, but it prophesied in the sense that it pictures this perfect man, what a perfect man would be like, in anticipating the one perfect man that would come. Isaac was a type of Christ. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 19, that he is a type. But his restoration to Abraham after his near death was a picture of the resurrection of Christ. And so throughout the whole Old Testament and Bible, there are types in the Old Testament which have shadows and implications and, and prophesying and anticipating of what Jesus would be like. And that's what Melchizedek is. He is made like the Son of God. He's a picture of the coming Jesus. I think in one way he is, is like in Isaiah chapter 9. Maybe you remember that passage oftentimes read at Christmas time. It speaks about the coming Messiah. For to us a child will be born, a son will be given, the government rests upon his shoulders, his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. And that's who Melchizedek is. He is a Prince of Peace. In, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7, it says that his, his establishment of his kingdom is going to be filled with justice and righteousness. Melchizedek is also king of righteousness, going to be everything that Jesus is. So Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. All right, and then at the end of verse 3, we see one last, 14th characteristic that's given about Melchizedek. It says this, that he is like Jesus, in that he remains a priest perpetually. In other words, I think the point here is that his priesthood knows no end. The Levitical priests of the Old Testament were qualified to serve as priests when they got to be age 25, and they were mandatory retirement at age 50. That's where it was. If you were 51, you couldn't be a priest anymore. And there were a whole bunch of other requirements upon priests. But the age here is the significant thing. From 25 to 50. But there's no age restriction here upon the priesthood of Melchizedek. And thus, he's a type of Jesus who is always a priest. The priesthood of Christ doesn't stop, doesn't end. It's, like, it's not like the Levitical priest where it just stops at age 50. No, the priesthood of Jesus continues on, knows no end in that way. Well, there are 14 characteristics of Melchizedek. begins to tell us some facts about him and who he is. And now, in verse 4, he's going to describe his greatness. Look what it says there. Now observe how great this man was. He's going to describe, first of all, how he's better than Abraham, or he's greater than Abraham, verses 4 through 8. And that's his argument. Now observe how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Remember back in Genesis 14 that that's what Abraham, and it even is saying here, Abraham the patriarch. He catch that. Abraham, the patriarch of patriarchs, gave a tenth to Melchizedek. He's going to argue about how great Melchizedek is. We'll get back to the ties in a little bit. But verse 5 then begins talking about the Levites, because it's the best way to show how great Melchizedek is about giving his tithes. And those indeed, verse 5, are the sons of Levi who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. These words refer to the way the Lord established his people. There were 12 tribes in the nation, based upon the, the 12 sons of Jacob, except 11 of the sons of Jacob, and then two of the sons of Joseph formed 12 tribes of sons of Israel, and the 12th, the, the 12th son of, of Jacob then becomes the Levites. So they're really 13 tribes, but the Levites were set apart to perform the, the priestly worship duties. When the camp was set up, they were right in the middle of the camp. They're the ones that took care of the Ark of the, the Covenant. They took care of all the matters of worship. They performed all the sacrifice the, the Levites did. And in order to be supported 
what God said is established is that the tithe would be given to these people. So the, the tribes of Reuben and Simeon and Levi and Judah and Dan and Naphtali and Gad and Asher and Issachar and Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin, Ephraim and Manasseh, would be given then to uh, the Levites so as to help with worship. They were out farmers. They were out there farming, shepherding things, and they took a tenth of what they did and supported the Levites. Now, this was obligation. They had a commandment, as verse 5 says. It was a commandment in the law. There was no way out. This wasn't voluntary. This was like a tax that was upon them in order for Israel to work. That's how it's got to be. And the benefit was obvious. Right? The Levites used these resources to give them uh, to serve the other tribes. Right? So the other tribes that had come to Jerusalem to worship is all set up, all laid out for them because the Levites were in charge of those things. They, they showed up. They confessed their sins. They brought their animal. They worshiped the Lord. Continue to support that so they could worship the Lord with pleasing aroma of the sacrifices. But in verse 6, we now see the greatness of Melchizedek. First in the first half. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that is, there's no binding commandment upon Abraham. The one whose genealogy is not traced from them, that's Melchizedek, I'm sorry. Melchizedek collected a tenth from Abraham. There was no commandment in the law. There was no obligation. There's no like, uh, priest of the Most High God comes out. Oh, I've got to pay this to you. There's no commandment on that. It was given voluntarily. It was given freely. It was given as an act of, of thanks. It was given as an act of worship. It's given as an act of blessing. But it's also given an act of who is the more special one here who is closer to God. It is the priest who is there. But not only did Melchizedek collect a tenth, collect this, this tithe, because he was the one set apart and sanctified, he also blessed the one who had the promises. That's what it says in the end of verse 6. And we saw that again in Genesis 14, that it was Melchizedek who pronounced this blessing upon Abraham. And that's the crux of why Abraham is greater, because he collected tithes and he blessed Abraham. They point to the privileged position of Melchizedek because, verse 7 says, without any dispute, I mean, nobody argues this, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In other words, when a blessing is given, was given in the Old Testament days, it's the fathers who gave the blessing to their children. Abraham blessed Isaac. Isaac blessed Jacob. Jacob blessed all his twelve sons. It was never the other way around. You never saw a son blessing the father. You always saw the father blessing the son. And likewise, in this instance, Melchizedek, the greater, Blessed Abraham the lesser. Now, such a perspective must have been shocking to the Jews. Because to them, nobody was greater than Abraham. Abraham was the father of their nation. He was the father of faith. As I said before, he was the patriarch, as it says in verse 4. Abraham, the man. I mean, he was the greatest of the greatest. Every Jew could trace their lineage back to Abraham. Every Jew had a tie back to that man. He was lifted high and exalted like none other. Abraham. So, when Jesus came to the Jews and implied that Jesus, he was greater than Abraham, the Pharisees were shocked. And they said, surely you are not greater than our father Abraham. Like, of course, that's a truism of truism. Nobody's greater than Abraham. But Jesus said, no, before Abraham was, I am. So Abraham existed, but even before he existed, I am have been continually. I'm better than Abraham. 
And this passage here, showing how Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. I don't think the Jews ever thought about this, even at all. Maybe there's some writings. I doubt. I, I didn't come across any. didn't read about anybody. Say, oh, this ancient Jewish writer spoke about how Melchizedek was so much greater. But when you see that it, Melchizedek received the tithes, Melchizedek was this one doing the blessing, you're like, well, Melchizedek then is superior to Abraham even. And that's the whole point. He's trying to show who's this Melchizedek. We got all these 14 facts, but first of all, he is greater than Abraham. And I believe that the writer is rocking the world that these people are hearing this. Because you think about it, the danger was these people were in the Jewish religion, they come out, they tasted of Christianity, were involved in this, and the temptation here is go back to Abraham, and he's pulling his trump card and saying, no, 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 Melchizedek is better than Abraham. As high as the Jews lift up Abraham, <laughs> my dad is stronger than your dad, right? My Melchizedek, Melchizedek is better than Abraham. And once you think about it, it's obvious that he is. And the argument then comes back even to tithes in verse 8. Speaking about how great Melchizedek is. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. That is Levitical system. It's mortal people receiving tithes. But in that case, one receives them, Melchizedek, of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. And again, here's the, here's the debate about what exactly it means. He has no beginning of days nor end of life. Was he, uh, was he not a man? Was he... Um, was he an angelic being? What, what was he? I, I think that it's the testimony of how the Jews looked at Scripture. It's looked at there was no beginning, no end to this guy. He just he lives on. He's got a priesthood perpetually. And giving to Melchizedek is giving to this immortal in some sense, which speaks of the greatness of Melchizedek. And we see this whole act of giving tithes has far-reaching consequences. Look at, look at verse 9. And so to speak, okay, so he's kind of... He knows he's on, um, whatever, symbolic, careful ground here. And so to speak, even Abraham, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. For he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. I, I think these verses, verse 9 and 10, speak about how Melchizedek is greater than Levi. My outline point there. He's better than Abraham, now he's better than Levi. Yes, it was Abraham who gave the spoils into the hands of Melchizedek, but, but there's more going on than that. That's what he's saying here. We read here that Levi, the great-grandson of Abraham, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, one of Jacob's twelve sons was Levi, was every bit as involved in paying that tithe to Melchizedek as Abraham was. Why? Because Levi was still in Abraham's loins at the time. See, the Bible often speaks this way. Is it those not yet born are in solidarity with their fathers. So what their fathers do, the offspring after that do as well. For instance, when Rebecca was pregnant with twins, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. What do you mean two nations? Just two children, Jacob and Esau. He said, no, no, these are two nations are in your room. Why? It's because the seed of the nation was in Jacob. The seed of the nation was in Esau. When Paul was talking about the sin of Adam, he said, when Adam sinned, we all sinned in Adam. It's called federal headship. He is not only our representative, but he is our federal head. He is the one who acts on our behalf. Now, we as Americans, we hate this. You mean I'm guilty for the sins of my father? In some regard, yes. 
because we're all guilty for the sin of Abraham of Adam. We are all guilty of that. We are so individual. We believe that everything, right? I can't be punished for something I didn't earn. And then we flip it all around and you say, well, I'm not to blame because of my upbringing. You know, kind of just flipping it on the other way. Even though I did earn it, well, I'm not to blame because he sinned and it's not my problem. It's like, let's take it all, okay? If he sinned, it is my problem. Adam sinned, it is my problem. His sin is imputed to us. And Americans don't like that, but I, I just warn you, church family, if you don't like that, then Christ has no part of you because we get the righteousness of Christ the same way we get the sin of Adam. It's imputed to us. And we could go on. I preached a sermon about that one time. You can read it later. But, but it does it just speak. As much as we hate that, we need to love it because the parallel there is exact between Adam and Christ. That's why evolution destroys Christianity because Christianity assumes that there's one man through whom sin passed to all so that there can be a corresponding man through whom righteousness can come to all as well. Anyway, the Bible speaks of a measure of responsibility the actions of our fathers. And bottom line, we Americans know this. Our children will be responsible for the debts that we are racking up today. Won't they? I mean, all of this, all of this spend, 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 spend. Someone's going to pay for it. Who's going to pay for our sins? Our children will pay for it. They're responsible for what we're doing. In the days of Joshua, they made a covenant with the Gibeonites who had deceived them. That had implications on the Jews hundreds of years later. And the fact that Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek had implication upon his great-grandson since Levi was in the loins of Abraham. It was just as if Levi was paying tithes himself. It's just as if the tribe of the Levites was giving tithes to Melchizedek. So those who received tithes from all of the people of Israel actually gave tithes to Melchizedek long ago because they were in the loins of Adam. Again, it's the implication of the greatness of Melchizedek. He is better than Levi. All right. I close with one final point. And um, when I was preparing my message, I really thought I'd get through verse 17 because the the point of Hebrews 7, 1 through 10 is this: is Melchizedek is better than Abraham. But I'm like, okay, so what? So what? If Melchizedek is better than Abraham, well, here's what so what is that Melchizedek is less than Jesus. That's the whole point. It's not so much to show just that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, as it is to show, think about how high Jesus is, that he's even better than Melchizedek, who is greater than Abraham. I mean, you show anything in the Jewish system, and Jesus is better. This hint of this is given in verse 3, where Jesus is made like the Son of God. Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. There we see Jesus is the the pattern. Melchizedek testifies to him. So Jesus is better. But it also comes in chapter 6. Turn back, you look back there. You don't need to turn back there. It's probably on your same page. Chapter 6, verse 19. And I kind of skipped over verse 20 last week and um, skipped over verse 19 a little bit. But it says, This hope we have, this hope we have set before us as an anchor of the soul, right? The the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, which is both sure and steadfast, and enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. 
And I want to focus even our attention upon the greatness of Jesus, this little phrase, He enters within the veil. When Levitical priests ministered in the temple, they spent the majority of their time outside the veil because they were ministering in the holy place. But they wouldn't go into the Holy of Holies because that is beyond the veil. But the high priest, once a year, would enter past into the veil, into the Holies of Holies, where he would offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. And that's where the true worship of God took place, true communion with God. And we find from other passages in Hebrews that actually the tabernacle was built based upon a heavenly pattern. Like chapter 8, verse 5, when it says that these priests serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which is shown you on the holy mountain, which is the pattern of the heavenly tabernacle. We also see in chapter 9, verse 11, that when Christ appears a high priest of good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, let's say not of his creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Jesus didn't enter the holy place on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem. He entered the heavenly holy place, of which the earthly tabernacle is merely a type or a pattern. In chapter 9, verse 24, we see Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but He entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And here in chapter 6, verse 19, where it says that Jesus enters within the veil. He's entering within the veil of the heavenly tabernacle. Where the Levitical priest ministered this tabernacle that was made by hands, Jesus was a priest of this heavenly tabernacle not made with hands into the very presence of God. Melchizedek, whatever temple he had, wherever sacrifice, it was still an earthly temple. But Jesus in sacrificing, or Jesus in his sacrifice went into the Holy of Holies. And as Jesus passed through this heavenly veil, the implication is this, is that Jesus is better than Melchizedek because he has gone there as a forerunner for us to bring us there as he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And next week we'll talk about how there's this different priesthood, a better priesthood. That Jesus is a priest that brings us to God. Okay? In a way that Melchizedek did in part, but Jesus does in whole. And with that, we will transition here to the Lord's Supper. Because the Lord's Supper is a way...